0: Welcome back to Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Wallace. This is where we get together to cover the most important key information for your pants or your panry, where we get together with thousands of other PAs who are studying right along with you, whether you feel you're completely isolated and alone setting for your panry, or you're in a group and a class setting and you've got 20 or 30 other people with you. Either way, this is the place for you. This is where we cover just the most important information out there for your exams. And This week, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, talking about bacterial infections. I do just want to thank, I got a great response from people this week who have passed their tests. Congratulations to all of you. Uh, just <laughs> so many, I can't name them, but congratulations. A couple people who have failed their exams and I've reached out to them and will help you uh, you know, get back on the horse and see what we can do to, to improve things. But for the most part, I just want to thank each and every one of you for showing up, for coming out. I really appreciate all the emails. I appreciate you guys uh, listening to the show each and every week. So let's get started with bacterial infections part two. The first one we're going to cover today, so we're going to cover, let's see, let me run through the list for you. I know it can be hard to keep track of what we're talking about as we move through in the audio format. So we're going to do cholera, diphtheria, uh, what's next? Uh, Salmonella, Shigella, and tetanus. I think that's it. Yep, that's it. So cholera, diphtheria, where'd it go? Cholera, diphtheria, oh, gonococcal infections, salmonella, Shigella, and tetanus. Yep, that'll do it for today. And we'll wrap up bacterial infections with that. We'll keep continuing with ID next uh, time we get together, but this week will just be the end of bacterial infections. So we're gonna start with cholera. And the first thing I want to say here is there's a great book out there by Stephen Johnson called The Ghost Map. And it's about a cholera outbreak. I think it was in, it was in the 1800s, late 1800s. And this was before anybody understood bacteria or had any idea where these diseases, how they were transmitted. and Uh, Dr. John Snow, who was also sort of the father of modern anesthesia, is an epidemiological book. And it's a really interesting story about how he discovered by mapping out where everyone had, all these people had died and then tracing their steps back and basically traced this cholera outbreak back to one water pump that people were using, one contaminated water pump. And it was a, a lot about him figuring out that this water pump was the problem when other people thought maybe it was coming from the air or you know all, all kinds of other places, because they just had no idea. And then it was him arguing and debating people, trying to prove to them that this was in fact what the problem was. So definitely a really interesting read. Uh, those of you in PA school may not have the time to read it, but uh, it's called The Ghost Map by Steven Johnson. Great, great, great book. I, I highly recommend it, a lot of fun. All right, so cholera, is the bug is Vibrio cholera, and it's a gram-negative, comma-shaped, uh, single flagella organism it's transmitted through the fecal oral route and it's common in places with poor sanitation and crowding so again this was a, a city setting where there was almost no sanitation in fact most of the people had cesspools in their basements that had so over flooded and were just filled with uh you know feces and urine and whatever because it costs so much money to have the stuff trucked out of the city so it just kept building up and building up and the city was completely filthy and that's one of the reasons for this uh serious outbreak so poor sanitation and crowding and what happens is there's a, a toxin that's produced by the bacteria which results in hypersecretion of water and chloride ions the signs and symptoms are rice water stool is sort of the key term here so very thin white kind of milky stool and tons of it, 10 to 20 liters a day, which translates to three to five gallons per day. And this is what kills people. Uh, they want to put dehydration. So you see a rapid heart rate, loss of skin elasticity, dry mucous membranes, um, low blood pressure, extreme thirst, and muscle cramps. And that's that dehydration that really that takes people down. The diagnosis is just a physical assessment and stool cultures. And then you can, there is a cholera dipstick test you can do but the bottom line is the true the, the the treatment here is fluids. So, just pumping the people full of fluids will save them. So even oral oral is is absolutely sufficient in most cases to treat cholera. Uh, electrolyte replacement is also necessary, and then obviously in, in severely dehydrated people people towards the later stages, IV fluids would, would move things along faster. You can use doxycycline and or azithromycin things of that nature. If you have like an elderly person who has it or something you want to sort of speed up the course a little bit, but it's really not necessary. It's just The real treatment here is fluids, fluids, fluids. And tons of people died of this until we started to realize that the treatment, again, pretty simple. Just they're losing tons of water through diarrhea. Give it back to them. So that's it for cholera. What you need to know is rice water stool, um, fecal oral root, poor sanitation, and give them fluids. Diphtheria. This is a Corynebacterium diphtheriae, gram-positive facultative anaerobe. And for those of you who have been out of school for a while, facultative anaerobes are organisms that can—they prefer, I think, they prefer oxygen, but they can definitely switch to fermentation uh, when there is no oxygen around. So they can—they can be anaerobic or aerobic. Uh, uh, the biggest place we find this is uh, pharyngeal infection, so in your throat. And the the key here is a gray pseudomembrane, which covers the pharynx and may cause an obstruction. So it's that gray pseudomembrane is with the diphtheria. You need to hold those two together in your head. There is an extremely successful vaccination here in the U.S., and I was amazed, (laughs) reading through some of this stuff, that there have only been two cases between 2000 and 2012 reported in the United States. Uh, Pretty amazing. The endotoxin here, which may affect—and there's also—oh, I'm sorry—the the Organism also can produce an endotoxin, which may affect the, affect the heart and and nervous tissue, and this can be fatal in about 5 to 10% of cases, mostly due to that toxin. Why patients present fever and chills, sore throat, uh, a barking cough, strider, hoarseness, difficulty breathing, uh, bloody nasal discharge, and then general malaise. On physical exam, you may see that adherent gray pseudomembrane covering the tonsils. There's a pronounced lymphadenopathy. And the diagnosis is largely going to be a physical exam and then a throat a, a swab for a culture that'll grow out the diphtheria bug. Treatments, you're going to want to give an antitoxin. Uh, antibiotics would be penicillin and urethromycin. You may need to do a, lindri- a, laryngosca- <laughs> a laryngoscopy to remove the pseudomembrane. Uh, intubation may be necessary because you may, as you're performing this, they may spasm and that would be bad. So you might want to pre-intubate them isolation and treatment of the contacts of the person, and these are reportable cases, obviously. So uh, that's the the treatment. This is hopefully something you'll never ever see, but something we certainly study and learn about. Gonococcal infections is next. So this is Neisseria gyneria, gram-negative intracellular diplococci. And I harp on these key terms, like intracellular diplococci, not because I think you're going to get a question that's going to say, um, what is Neisseria? You know, what what's the... Uh, the shape for a Neisseria on your exam. I don't think you're going to get that, but you may see a question that's going to describe a gram-negative intracellular diplococci in a patient that has blah, 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 blah. And your brain needs to just translate that into Neisseria gonorrhea without thinking, without taking any time out of your um, exam, without taking any time. You just need to be able to translate those key terms into what they actually are. Again, I, I harp on key terms. I harp on these buzzwords, and, and I... I the vast majority of people send me emails saying how great you know the book is with them, how much it helped them on their tests, all these things. But once in a while, I get emails from people that say, you know, the test doesn't have key terms on it anymore. They got rid of that stuff. It doesn't really work that way. And I just strongly disagree. It's not as straightforward as if you know the key terms, you're going to pass. I don't think that that's true. But I do think if you don't know them, it's really hard. I don't think you can do it without them. Well, I think you can, but geez, it's 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 so hard. But if you can make these transitions super fast from from hearing the term gram negative intracellular diplococci and knowing it means it's it's just Neisseria, then it's the rest of it becomes easier. You don't have to spend so much time reading each question and and trying to uh, parse out each piece if you can just read the question and understand exactly what it's asking. And that's where I think these key terms and and buzzwords come in so strongly is keeping up your pace and keeping up your confidence as you read questions. The more you can understand a question as you read it, and the more it builds your confidence instead of reading a question and having no friggin' clue what it's asking or what it's saying, uh, I I just think that that's tremendous. Uh, So anyway, I'm going to get done off my soapbox for a minute here and continue on our discussion of (laughs) Neisseria. It infects the mucous membranes of the reproductive tract, including the cervix, uterus, and fallopian tubes in women and the urethra in men or women. It can also affect the mouth, throat, eyes, anus, uh, secondary to direct inoculation. So you, any of those areas where there's a mucous membrane and you get Neisseria on it, it can infect them. You can also get a systemic gonococcal infection or a disseminated gonococcal infection. And in the chronic cases, this may also lead to, to prostatitis and pelvic inflammatory disease. We talked a little bit about pelvic inflammatory disease last week. Um, this, is, this can definitely lead to infertility in women, and can be pretty nasty. Why patients present? For men with urethritis, they come in with a normal discharge from the penis, yellow, creamy, and excessive. Excessive, that's an interesting term for unwanted discharge from the penis, Uh, and it can also be blood-tinged. It's painful or frequent urination is another common complaint. In women, uh, one of the biggest concerns with a Neisseria infection in women is it may be asymptomatic. A good percentage of them are asymptomatic. And obviously, that can cause problems because if they're not treated, they can again go on and cause uh, pelvic inflammatory disease or PID and lead to infertility and all sorts of other problems in frozen pelvises, uh, pain in the pelvis, uh, et cetera. So, sort of a tough call, sort of a tough problem where we do have some screening going on uh, because it can be asymptomatic. They may also have, if they do have symptoms, they would include things like abnormal purulent vaginal discharge, abnormal vaginal bleeding during or after sex or between periods, general itching, painful or frequent urination. Painful sexual intercourse, irregular menstrual bleeding, lower abdominal pain, and fever for men and women, if you get an eye infection, this is usually unilateral although not always, uh, and there is copious purulent discharge, copious purulent discharge um, and another pl- place this winds up and something to sort of think about as far as test questions go is it can uh, if once it becomes Sort of disseminated, it can wind up as a septic arthritis, typically of the knee, ankle, or wrist. Those are going to be the most common, but you can definitely get a an arthritic uh, gonococcal infection. The way we test for this is a polymerase chain reaction or PCR. We can do a culture, Gram stain, urinalysis, analysis, and pelvic ultrasound in women just to uh, identify what's going on in the pelvis if we've got pelvic pain. Treatment, widespread antibiotic resistance, so that's obviously a problem. Currently, it's being treated with IM ceftriaxone with doxycycline and, I'm sorry, or azithromycin at the same time, Um, and it made it very clear that it was ceftriaxone and then another medication, even if you don't think that chlamydia is going to be present, although these will help cover chlamydia because a lot of times you get mixed infections with these um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, and also here again, all partners need to be treated. Salmonella infection, Uh, the main bug here is Salmonella enterica, I I don't know. It's a gram-negative rod. Um, This comes from ingestion of contaminated food or water. Um, The the period of disease for, there's there's basically, we're gonna look at this in two different ways. There's enteric fever, which is typhoid, and there's gastroenteritis, which is the most common uh, issue. We're gonna talk about them a little bit separately here. Sort of caused by similar bugs, both in the Salmonella uh, grouping, but slightly, uh, slightly different disease states. So, well, it's considerably different disease states. Uh, typhoid has an incubation period of 5 to 14 days and gastroenteritis in- has an 8 to 48-hour incubation course. Um, in- I'm sorry, incubation and a 3 to 5-day course. Patients present with enteric fever or typhoid. They have a pro- prodrome of general malaise, cough, and fever. They wind up with abdominal pain and distension, constipation, diarrhea. Pea soup stool is a term I came across in a couple of different places. I don't remember it from when i was in pa school but i definitely came across it in multiple sources here high fevers elevated heart rates abdominal tenderness which was another sort of key uh, issue pink papular rash on their trunk delirium and hypovolemic shock is sort of the end point here so uh typhoid pretty pretty nasty and i i did go back and do some reading about uh typhoid mary as i was going through this a pretty interesting story really she was a, a woman and most of you know some of the story she was a cook and she worked in different uh, wealthy households, and every single home she got in, there seemed to be an outbreak of typhoid, until eventually one of the docs tracked her down, and she refused to give samples and, of stool or anything else, and eventually what happened was the, the health department showed up and arrested her and confined her uh, and put her in jail, and while she was in jail, they did some studies and found out that she did, in fact, uh, carry salmonella, and she was a, a, a carrier. Right, So she wasn't getting sick, but she was a carrier and as a food preparation person. And she, they tried to convince her that she needed to wash her hands and do a really good job making sure that she didn't spread this. And she just, from the, again, I read one article on this, but from the from the article I read, she just, she just couldn't understand why that was necessary. She wasn't sick. She didn't know why it was a problem. And they eventually released her under the... Um, under the idea that she would no longer be a cook, she she said that she would not cook anymore, and she'd be sure to wash her hands to try to you know help watch out for this. Well, it turned out that she went into to the laundry business, and the laundry business was not nearly as lucrative as the cooking business. So she wound up cooking again, and a whole bunch of people wound up getting sick again. So they put her in jail. Uh, I think that was pretty much for the rest of her life at that point. I, I can't remember exactly. She wound up dying of pneumonia, um, but it was but really uh, sort of a. More interesting story than I than I initially thought it would be. So anyway, again, moving on. <laughs> Let's keep moving. Uh, gastroenteritis. We're talking about uh, salmonella. And gastroenteritis is the most common. We This is what we hear the most about. You ate something bad, uh, got cramping, abdominal pain, fever, nausea, vomiting, bloody diarrhea. So it can be pretty bad, uh, With, but it usually only lasts about three to five days. Diagnosis in both cases is going to be stool analysis, fecal analysis, blood cultures, and urine cultures, depending on what we're looking for. Treatment is going to be, once again, replace fluids and electrolytes. If when you see that we've got diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, rule number one is going to be replace fluids and electrolytes. For enteric fever, you're going to use things like uh, fluoroquinolone, so ciprofloxacin, uh, or a third-generation cephalosporin, like ceftriaxone. Uh, For the gastritis, it's really self-limiting. You could give bactrim or cipro, but again, uh, it's self-limiting. It lasts a couple of days, and the patients uh, get better and cleared on their own. So we've got shigella and tetanus left. Shigella is a gram-negative facultative anaerobe, and it's a rod. So again, facultative anaerobic can live in either aerobic or anaerobic states. It's also fecal-oral, and this is something that's often found in daycare centers, nursing homes, refugee camps, and other places where conditions are crowded and poor sanitation, so not dissimilar from cholera. Signs and symptoms, abdominal discomfort, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, presence of blood, pus, or mucus in the stools, fever, and rectal tenismus. If we've got diarrhea as a main cause, I'm pretty sure we're going to find fluids and electrolytes under our treatment plant. Diagnosis is going to be stool analysis for red blood cells and white blood cells, stool cultures, and sigmoidoscopy, if we really want to be clear. And here's our treatments. Yes, fluids and electrolytes are going to replace all that stuff. Medications could include things like Bactrim, Cipro, and ampicillin. And then we're going to move on to our last bacteria for today, or our last infection for the day, which is going to be tetanus, caused by Clostridium tetani. This is a gram-positive obligate anaerobe, and it is a rod. So... Obligate anaerobe means it needs to be, it doesn't grow in an aerobic environment it does, in the presence of oxygen. And this is important because this is a bug we find that's sort of ubiquitous. It's all over the place. It's in soil is the main place it's found. But this is why wound contamination can be a real issue, especially with things like puncture wounds. I remember growing up, and I don't know who put this in my head, if it was, if it was my parents or what, but I was always scared of stepping on a rusty nail because of tetanus. Not I'm scared is a strong term, but um, because you get that puncture wound. And later, after realizing it, the, the reason why the puncture wounds are dangerous is because there's no, uh, there's a, a decreased oxygen there, so that the 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 bug can grow. And the problem with tetanus is it releases a neurotoxin, which causes uncontrollable muscle spasms, uncontrollable muscle spasms. So the opposite of uh, botulism and our toxin there, which causes uh, floppy muscles and the muscles not to function. Here we get uncontrollable muscle spasms. So just the opposite. Signs and symptoms, this is pain and (laughs) spasticity, so pain and spasticity at the site of inoculation. So where if you have a uh, contaminated wound, you get (laughs) pain and spasticity at that site. Uh, Trismus is a fancy word for lockjaw, spasms and stiffness along the jaw muscles. You can get facial spasms, stiffness in the neck, difficulty swallowing, stiffness of the abdominal muscles, painful body spasms lasting for several minutes and spasms of the respiratory muscles. There's also a footnote in a lot of the articles I read on this talking about uh, patients pretty much conscious for all of this. So it's extremely painful and terrifying. This is a clinical diagnosis. There's a vaccination, which works pretty well, um, requires a booster every 10 years. Mild cases would get a uh, tetanus immunoglobulin IM they may also get metronidazole, diazepam. Diazepam is going to help with the muscle contractions. That's really going to be the main point there. Um, another interesting point with the tetanus immunoglobulin: in mild cases, they start out with IM, but in a more severe case, it can be injected intrathecally, which is like doing a spinal. And the I think it, the what is it? The the efficacy shoots up from like. 10 or 15% to like 45 or 50%. So really big difference there. Patient may need a tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation depending on how things are going. And magnesium also helps prevent muscle spasms. So my magnesium and diazepam um, to help with the muscle spasms. So that's tetanus. Okay, so that finishes up bacteria for, for now. So let's talk a little bit about our study tip for today. This is... Uh, all right, let me just jump in. So one of the things I subscribe to and I think is going to be super important for you for your exam is going to be the idea of habits and doing things in a certain routine and doing things the same way. And what I mean by that is, um, like I mentioned last week, uh, our last time, I always wore the same shirt when I took major exams. I always did certain things in the same way. I always listened to the same music before my exams. And I think that really goes a long way to prep you and make you comfortable in a given situation and make you ready, in your brain ready for that situation. You know, I've, I've done looking into some of these things and it really is sort of a way to prime your brain and to get you prepared and into a certain mode to make you able to take an exam. And let me extrapolate a little bit. Uh, there's a story about Michael Phelps who obviously was the uh, Olympic champion <laughs> who set all kinds of records and has the most, what is it, the most gold medals of anyone ever. And during the 2008 Olympics in the 200 meter butterfly, He was supposed to walk away uh, with the world record and just blow out the competition. And it's a pretty amazing story as to what happened during that particular race. One of the things that his coach would have him do before each race and every night for practice all the time was what he would call playing the tape. So what he meant by that was he would envision the perfect race every night before he went to get bed and every morning before he got up and then Before each race, he'd run through a mental tape of what the perfect race would look like, how many strokes it would be, how hard they would be, and create that perfect, perfect race. His coach's name was Bob Bauman, by the way. On race day, Michael Phelps would always eat the same breakfast, he'd do the same stretching and warm up routines in the same exact orders, he would always listen to the same music and put his headphones on at the same time before the race. And again, before the race, he would play that tape of the perfect race in his head. Well, during that 200-meter butterfly in 2008, what happened was he dove into the pool and his goggles began to fog up, and then they began to completely flood. By the end of the race, he couldn't see it all and was completely blind. He wound up winning the race and beating the guy who came in second because he had done it so many times, and he had done it the same exact way, and he knew exactly how many strokes it was going to take. He literally could not see in the final lap of the race, but he didn't need to he was able to rely on all of his habits to carry him through. And it's an absolutely amazing story. I'm not really doing him much justice here. If you look it up on, any, on the internet, you can find a bunch of great articles about what happened. But I think that we can really extrapolate a lot from this. And the idea that when you sit down to study or you sit down to take your exams, you should do things in a very similar way. You should prepare in a very similar way. You know, I think it makes sense to always eat the same breakfast that morning, especially during PA school, when you have a bigger routine, when you're taking more exams. To always do, to always use the same kind of pen, to always, you know, like I said, I always wear the same shirt. I always listen to the same music. I I find that it gets you into the right mode. And then the fear is, of course, you don't have that stuff and then you fall apart because you get scared. But I think that's a little, uh, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think what you do is you make sure that you sit down when you study or when you take practice tests and you do things in a very methodical way and you develop these habits. Because a big part of your test taking is anxiety maintenance, anxiety control. I don't think from what I hear from people, the thousands of people I've talked to over the past three years who've taken this test, the amount of knowledge they cram into their head doesn't seem to be the problem. I think most people get enough of the content knowledge in. The problem is how, well, they manage their fears and anxieties, what their heart rate looks like on test day. If they fall apart after a tough question or two or a tough section. One of the things I think can really help you hold it together and maintain your uh, reasonable heart rate as you walk in the building and sit down at your desk is having habits built in so that when you sit down and take your test, it feels exactly like your study sessions. It feels much like when you took your practice tests. I think that's really important to help get your brain around the idea that this is just another day. This isn't the Olympics. This isn't the, the test that will decide whether you can work or not. This is just another day. You've done this before; it's not a big deal, and I think that makes a tremendous difference in managing that anxiety. And again, I think managing that anxiety is probably your number one goal for that day. So I think that this is uh, <laughs> can be extremely valuable to you uh, if you take it seriously and keep up with this very specific type of practice. Anyway, let's move along to the key terms uh, for this section. Patient presents with complaining of huge volume of diarrhea, and which he describes as a milky color. He looks a little blue. What's the most likely diagnosis? Cholera, in this case. Huge volumes of diarrhea with a milky-colored diarrhea. Uh, that's sort of our rice water, uh, rice water stool. Cholera. What's the first-line treatment for all diarrhea issues? Fluids, absolutely fluids. What is, the, what is the treatment for a gram-negative diplococci we talked about today? What's the treatment for a gram-negative diplo- diplococci we talked about? that was going to be gonorrhea. I am ceftriaxone. A gray pseudomembrane covering the pharynx should make you think of what diagnosis? A gray pseudomembrane covering the pharynx should make you think of what diagnosis? Our answer here is diphtheria. Diphtheria. All right, so that'll wrap up today's show um, <laughs> and finish up bacteria for us. Thank you so much for joining us here again at Physician Assistant Exam Review. I really do appreciate you following through with us to the end of the show. I really appreciate those of you who have been sharing with me your testing experience is both good and bad so please keep that up uh good luck on your exams head on over to the website of course uh i've been putting together these activity books you can go check that out you just put in your email address and you can get that for free uh right on the website under any of the infectious disease categories you can get the one for infectious disease at this point i've put together the one for psychology or psychiatry as well so if you head over to the psych section you can pick up the the activity book for psych there uh, those are the only two I have got completed so far, although I am moving forward in the project so you can get the psych or the infectious disease activity books. Just by going to those specific sections and looking at the the links on those pages, it should be very, very obvious how you get a hold of those. So good luck to you taking your exams this week. Uh, take care, and I can't wait to join you guys again in two weeks to to continue with Infectious Disease.